You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be uh, continuing our series in 1 John this morning. 1 John, we'll, we'll start at the end of chapter 2, and then we'll read a few verses into chapter 3. Uh, those black hardcover Bibles that Jenna mentioned a moment ago, page 1022 is where you can find our, our text this morning. In the 1990 movie, Kindergarten Cop, which you've been waiting your whole life for a sermon illustration from Kindergarten Cop, you just didn't know it, but you're going to get one today. Kindergarten Cop, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, plays an LAPD detective named John Kimball. And in order to catch a drug dealer and to protect the, the drug dealer's ex-wife and son, he goes undercover as a kindergarten teacher, and hilarity ensues. That's, the, that's kind of the premise of the whole movie. But in one of the more memorable scenes, uh, as he's trying to figure out which student in his class is the child of the drug dealer, uh, Kimball sets the whole class down, and he asks them to answer an important question. I don't have a good Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, so I'm not going to try to do it this morning, but maybe somebody can do that later for us. But uh, he asks the class, who is your daddy and what does he do? Anybody remember this scene from the movie? Who is your daddy and what does he do? That question, is as cute as it is in that setting, takes on a much more profound meaning when we think about it in our actual lives. Fathers shape our lives in immense ways. Uh, Their presence or absence, their actions or their inactions, they have a huge impact on our identity. Whether we want this to be true or not, we really are are our father's child. Well, in today's text, the Apostle John takes it a step even further than that. He says, in addition to our earthly fathers, each of us has a spiritual father. And he goes on to write in this text that we are either children of God or children of the devil. And even as we hear that this morning, you you can probably anticipate there's a massive difference between the two. Each of these spiritual fathers has very different priorities. They want very different things for their children. And so how we answer the question, who is our father and what does he do? At the end of the day, how we answer that question defines our identity so much so that it will be evident from our lives. Can't help but be evident from our lives who our spiritual father is. So writing into this atmosphere in the first century where there's both false teachers who have confidence that they should not have and genuine Christians who are struggling to find the confidence that they should have, John writes these words so that you may know your real identity. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive into our text this morning. God of all and our father in heaven, you gave your only son to take the form of a servant and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. As we anticipate that, celebrating that, commemorating that this week, even together on Good Friday, would you now by your spirit, give us that same mind of Jesus, that by sharing his humility, that by walking in his ways, that by trusting in his finished work, we may come to be with him in glory our Lord who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I invite you to now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and I'll read through chapter 3, verse 10. 
And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that is Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. So here's the the big idea of today's text. We are either children of God or children of the devil. And our practices are proof of our parentage. Our practices are proof of our parentage. And furthermore, what John says here then is because of Jesus' appearings, Christians are those who practice righteousness, not sin. And it's by this that we actually have confidence about our real identity as children of God. So we're going to look at three key things that John unpacks for us in this text. They come in twos. They come two by two. So there's two fathers, then there's two appearings, and then lastly, two practices. So first, let's talk about two fathers. Throughout this letter, not just today's text, but the whole letter, John refers to his readers as children. He's confident that they are children of God. And like an older brother in the faith, he's writing to them to give them the assurance that they need. But as he makes clear, especially there in chapter 3, verse 10, that's not the only option. There are children of God, but there are also children of the devil. There are two spiritual fathers. Now, in one sense, in the, in the creation sense, God is the father of all. So all human beings were made by God and are made in the image of God. Uh, that's sometimes known as the universal fatherhood of God. But in the spiritual sense, God is actually not the father of all. In in John's gospel, in his his account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus at one point says to the Pharisees, uh, the hypocritical religious leaders of his day, he says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. It's a bold statement. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now, on the other hand, at the beginning of John's gospel, he writes in John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right or the privilege 
to become children of God. You see, something has to happen in order for God to become our Father. We have to receive Jesus and believe in the name of Jesus. Only then are we given that right, that privilege of being known as the children of God. And as John writes about then in this text, in order to receive and believe in Jesus, something else first and more fundamental has to happen about us, in us. Something, something else has to change. We have to be born again, reborn. John says it in, in chapter 2, verse 29, and again in chapter 3, verse 9. We have to be born of God. Now, on the one hand, born again is among the most overused, cliche statements about Christians in our day. It's become a label to differentiate a certain segment of Protestant, largely theologically conservative Christians. But here's the reality. There are no Christians apart from this second birth. If we are not born again, if we are not born of God, then we are not God's children. And that means, which is the only other option left, that we would be children of the devil. So one author put it this way, he said, our parentage is either divine or diabolical. We either, spiritually speaking, we either have Satan for a father or God for a father. And it's this new birth, it's this regeneration, as it's sometimes called, that makes the difference in our real identity. So listen really closely to what John writes in this text, because, because God forbid we would ever lose our awe from overuse of this phrase, born again. He says there in in chapter 3, verse 9, whoever is born of God has God's seed abiding in them. That's a bold metaphor. It's a bold metaphor. The Greek word is sperma. It's where we get the English word sperm. When scripture talks about a man's seed, it's talking about his biological children. Think about Abraham's seed, the, the, the descendants of Abraham that are referenced throughout scripture. It's using that vivid of a metaphor The Apostle John says, you are born of God. You are remade in God. John Stott says that to be born again is, quote, the acquisition of a new nature through the implanting within us of the very seed of the life-giving power of God. So this doesn't mean that, that you and I are divine like Jesus is divine. It doesn't mean that you and I are begotten in the same way that Jesus is the only begotten son but it's actually way closer to that than the simple label born-again Christian often means. A born-again Christian is not just someone who checks a few of the right boxes doctrinally. A born-again Christian has the seed of God abiding in him or her. A born-again Christian is a son or daughter of God brought into God's family. And though the metaphor we get in Scripture for, for being in God's family, though the metaphor is adoption, It's so fixed, it's so unchangeable that John here uses the language not of an adoptive father, but a biological one to describe God's children. And that's why in in the middle of this text, John overflows with awe. Chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's the language of someone who's marveling. That's the, that's the language of someone who like can't continue on with his normal train of thought without pausing and try to take it in for just a moment. Verse 1 literally says, what country is this from? What country is this from? This love from God. It's the same word the disciples actually use of Jesus when, he's, when they're with him in the boat and he calms the, the wind and the waves. He calms the storm and they say, what kind of man is this? 
That's the word John uses here as he says, what kind of love is this? What country is it from? It's so foreign, it defies our experience. It defies our imaginations. And yet it's precisely what we long for most, that we would have a father like this, that we would be loved by a father who loves us with this kind of love. And Christian, John is saying to you, you have it. You have it. You have God for your father. And it's not only that you are called children of God. He says, and so we are. You are children of God. It's not just a reference. It's reality. It's reality. Born of God and therefore able to receive and to believe in Jesus, you have become a child of God. That is your real identity. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If, it is not the th- if, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And so I want to invite you to consider this week, how much do you make of this thought? that you have God for your father? How much do you treasure that through the work of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you have been born of God, that God has become your father? As John writes, this this real identity is both who we already are now and it secures who we will be. And that has everything to do with the two appearings of Jesus that John talks about in this text. So second, let's talk about the two appearings. John speaks about both Jesus' past appearing, and then he also writes about his future appearing. And just stepping back for for a second this morning, uh, all throughout the Bible, the the Bible is filled with both indicatives and imperatives. Uh, Indicatives are things that are true. They're the events that happen. They're statements about things that are true. Imperatives are things to do. So what is true, what to do? You can think about it that way. Because salvation is by God's grace alone and does not come through the things we do, does not come through our works, the imperatives always flow out of the indicative. So it's always, because this is already true, do this. It's always, because God has already done this, now live in light of it this way. So John has a lot to say in this text about how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to be people who practice righteousness and don't practice sin. But notice how all of the callings and commands, the imperatives, are grounded in the indicatives of Jesus' appearings. We are children of God. We can live as children of God because Jesus Christ has appeared and because Jesus Christ will appear. So first, let's consider his his past appearing. John writes about it in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 3. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus appeared the first time. He came into the world the first time to take away sins. A few weeks back when we were at the very beginning of chapter 2 in 1 John, we read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Uh, He is the atoning sacrifice. The the wrath of God that that would have fallen upon us because of our sin fell upon Jesus instead. His death satisfied God's demand for justice. But what we're reading in this text is that Jesus is also our expiation. In the Old Testament, 
on the Day of Atonement, there wasn't just one goat, there were two. There were two. One was the propitiation, and so the priests would lay their hands on the head of this goat, they would confess the sins of the people, and then they would sacrifice the goat on the altar. That was the propitiation to take the wrath of God, to satisfy the justice of God. But the second goat was for expiation. Rather than sacrificing it, the priests again would lay their hands on the goat's head, they would confess the sins of the people. Rather than sacrificing it, they would send it away into the wilderness, never to return again. And it was a very vivid symbol of what David, King David wrote about in Psalm 103, that God is the one who removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He not only propitiates, he expiates. He not only deals with the penalty of sin, he deals with the pollution that comes into our lives because of sin, the dirtiness of sin. Because if we're, if we're going to have God as our father, if we're going to be his child and bear the family resemblance, we need it to be cleansed and purified. There is no sin in God. And as John writes here, Jesus was without sin. Of course, we know, left to ourselves, that's not true of us. We needed Jesus to appear. We needed him to enter into this world and live a sinless life and die in our place in order to take our sin away. And friends, if your faith is in Jesus, this is what's true of you. This is what's true of you. Jesus has taken away your sin. Not only has your sin been atoned for, it has been removed from you. You are forgiven your debt. You are also freed from the degradation. You are forgiven of the penalty of sin, but you are also freed from the pollution of it. Because Jesus appeared, came into the world. We'll keep going. Verse 8, Jesus' past appearing was also to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came into the world the first time to defeat Satan. He appeared in order to secure ultimate victory. And now, in, in beginning to remake the world, Jesus is dismantling Satan's works. He is tearing down all of the counterfeits. He's tearing down all of the corruptions, all of the idols which turn people's hearts away from God. Though we're not often aware of it, cosmically, a battle always rages between God and Satan. And one way or another, our identity enlists us in this fight. It's, it's a little bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, or if you'd prefer, it's like Romeo and Juliet, the Capulets and the Montagues. If your father is a Capulet, you fight for the Capulets. You're born into it. You do the works of the Capulet family. But if your father is a Montague, you fight for the Montagues. You're born into that. You do those works instead. That's why who our father is matters so much. We will do the works of our spiritual father. Our parentage will determine our practices. And so if our father is the devil, we will do the works of the devil. But if instead our Father is God, we will do the work of God. We will participate in the work of Jesus, the work that he appeared to accomplish, which was to destroy the works of the devil. So that's Jesus' past appearing. John also here writes in this text about Jesus' second appearing, his future appearing. Verse 28 of chapter 2, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
Children of God long for Jesus's future appearing. They're excited for it. They're ready for it. And that's because, as John says here, they have confidence in that, that the future appearing of Jesus is going to be for them the absolute best day of their life and the absolute best day for the history of the world. It's the day that everything is made new. It's the day that all of the sadness comes untrue. Children of the devil are not excited for that day, though. They fear it. It's for them. It's the day of judgment. It's a day of shame. It's a day where they'll want to hide, but they won't be able to hide. And so it's, it's worth considering as we reflect this week, am I fearful or joyful of Jesus's future appearing? Does the thought of Jesus coming again, does that inspire confidence in me or shame in me? Because our answer to that question will say something about our, our real identity. Our answer to that question says something about who our spiritual father is. John continues then to write about Jesus' future appearing in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, in the future, Jesus will appear not only to judge, but to perfect, to complete. When he appears in the future, he will complete the good work that he has begun in us and in this world. John says here, because of Jesus' past appearing, we are God's children now. Right now, that is true of us. We're not waiting to have that identification for some future day. But the fullness of it, our complete beauty and majesty as fully restored and perfected image bearers, we are awaiting Jesus' future appearing for that. There is a, a glory to be revealed in us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. There is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4. When Jesus appears, we will be like him. Not God as he is God, but fully conformed to his image. We will be like Jesus. Morally, we will be completely rid of sin. Even the ones that cling so closely. Even the ones that seem to just keep coming back over and over again. On that day, you'll be completely free of those sins. Physically, you'll be without illness or weakness or imperfection. Mentally, cognitively, we will have complete integrity. No more hints of lies or partial truths or errors. We're living a dualistic kind of life, morally, uh, mentally, integrity. We will no longer on that day see dimly as in a mirror, but we will see him as he is, John says. We will be like him on that day. May that day come soon. We are meant to live our whole lives in light of these two appearings. That's why John writes this here. They, they are the truths, they are the indicatives which shape the imperatives for us to live a pure and righteous life. In other words, these indicatives, these truths are what are meant to shape our practices. So third and finally, let's talk about the two practices. John writes here in this text about both the practice of sinning and the practice of righteousness. And as we've been seeing, our, our practice is the direct outflow of our parentage. Right? We will always live out our real identity. We will always live out who we really are. And so if someone is a child of the devil, he or she will practice 
sin. He or she will continue to rebel against the law of God, against the design of God. But if someone is a child of God, he or she will practice righteousness. They will do what is right and good as defined by God, what is morally right and good as exemplified by Jesus. See, at the end of the day, we can't help but bear the family resemblance. That's true of us in our physical lives. It's true of the characteristics that we take on from our parents. We can't help but bear our family resemblance. What John is saying here is it's true spiritually too. We will bear the family resemblance. We will do the kinds of works our father does. In verse 10, he offers two simple but profound tests that serve as evidence about which family we belong to. Do you do what is right and do you love your brother? your fellow Christian. Now, doing those things is not what makes us children of God. It's really important that we get this order right. Doing those things is not what makes us children of God, but it is what proves that we are children of God. Just as we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for our good works, we are not born again because we do what is right and because we love our brother. But if we are born again, if we are born of God, we will do what is right. We will love our brother. As J.I. Packer elsewhere put it, he said, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. Or he says it this way, the converted lifestyle is more significant than any conversion experience. In other words, any of our talk about being born again, being a born again Christian, doesn't matter a whole lot unless you actually live like someone who has been born again. In 1 John, throughout this letter, the apostle is confronting two related but distinct errors that people in his day and people in our day tend to make about our relationship with sin. One is perfection and the other is indifference. One is an arrival mentality and the other is apathy. So some of the false teachers in the first century were claiming perfection. They were claiming that they already were completely free from sin. And that error is an overrealization, thinking that someone who has been born of God can arrive at perfection in this life before that future appearing of Jesus, when we will be like him. And so John writes in this letter, but especially what we studied in chapter one, that if we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Christians still sin. We still sin. Christians still need to repent. We do it together. Corporately, we do it together individually every time we gather on a Sunday. And if you're like me, you do it a lot more than that on the days between Sundays. That's one error. The other error, there are other false teachers that are indifferent about sin. So they're not denying that they sin. They're just saying sin isn't that big of a deal. You know, if, if you're a child of God, it doesn't really matter how you live. You can live however you want. You've already been given that identity. It doesn't matter. That is an under-realization. And John is saying, especially in this text, that's the error he's confronting here. He's saying, it does matter. It does matter how you live. If you are born of God, if you have God's seed abiding in you, then there is no situation where sin is inevitable. There's no situation in your life where you have to sin. And your life, if you are born of God, will never be characterized by apathy towards sin. You'll never become resigned to it. You'll never embrace sin and give it quarter in your life as a continual habit because you're not in bondage to sin the way a child of the devil still is. As one author put it, the Christian may fall into sin, 
but he will not walk in it. The Christian may fall into sin, but he will not walk in it. A Christian is not perfect, but a Christian does practice righteousness. So I want you to consider this week and talk about this with friends or family members or your Bible study group. What is the practice of my life? What is the practice of my life? Is it sin or is it righteousness? What does the evidence of my life say about who my father is? And would it be consistently evident to all the different groups of people that I might cross paths with in a given week or month or year? Is it consistently evident to them that I'm a child of God? You can use these two tests in verse 10. Do I do what is right? Do I love my brother, my fellow Christian? And and when I don't do those things, when I fall short of those things, am I sensitive to it? And do I pursue repentance from it? Or am I indifferent and apathetic? As a child of God, we are those who are intent to destroy the works of the devil, the way Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. We are not those who want to perpetuate them or give them quarter. So John is writing these words, this text, that you may know your real identity. And that is true for two audiences who might hear these words, both in his day and today in ours. There are some people who think they are children of God, but actually are not. They have a false kind of assurance. And they presume, maybe because they had an experience at one point in their life, or someone gave them some words to pray, a specific kind of prayer in their life, that now, because they did that, they can live however they want. They can practice sin and still pretend like God is their father. If that is you this morning, let John's words in this text wake you up. I plead with you this morning to wake up to the precarious place that you are in. Stop presuming upon God in that way. It is very possible if you are someone who who claims a past experience but has no intent to practice righteousness in your life right now, it's, it's likely, if that's you, that you are not a child of God but a child of the devil. Born again is not a voting block or a label. It is a complete transformation of your life. And our lives should always make it evident that we are children of God. If it doesn't, if you find in yourself this morning that it doesn't, do not wait another day to deal with that. Because here's the thing. God is the God of adoption. He loves to rescue people out of the abusive, soul-stealing fatherhood of Satan and make those former children of the devil his own children. If your father is the devil today, he does not need to be your father tomorrow. Thank God. God desires to bring you into his family. Now, the other audience who might hear these words would be genuine Christians who are struggling to find the assurance that they should have, to find the confidence they should have. Men and women who are sensitive to sin and who are seeking to practice righteousness. But maybe you've sinned again. And this week, or even this morning, before you came here, you've returned to that same sin, the one that you just can't seem to be rid of in your life. And now you find yourself as you come this morning, not confident, but more inclined to shrink back in shame. If that's you, I want you to just look right at me this morning. Jesus Christ appeared to take away your sin. Not some ambiguous person, like your sin. Jesus is your expiation. And if your faith is in him, 
then it's true that God has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. So take heart in that truth today. Take heart in this. When Jesus appears, you will be like him. You might not be today. You might be wrestling with that sin again today. But you will be on that day. You have not even begun to fathom what you will be. You have not even begun to grasp the glory that will be revealed in you when Jesus comes again and brings to completion the good work that he has begun. Friends, Jesus Christ has appeared and Jesus Christ will appear. In him, may you know and may you live in light of your real identity as children of God, as one who has God for a father. Would you lift your eyes today and be encouraged by these words from John? See what kind of love the father has given to us that you should be called a child of God. Through the appearings of Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, so you are. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you have given to us this incredible, undeserved gift of your grace and mercy. You have made us your children. We who once were children of the devil, we who once practiced sin and lawlessness and rebelled against you, you through the work of Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, have made us your own have implanted your seed within us. We come today recognizing how we could never have done anything to earn that, but rejoicing that you have given us that through the work of Jesus. As we, as we prepare this week to commemorate, to remember, to reflect on the work of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, his suffering and his crucifixion and death, as we get ready to celebrate his resurrection a week from today, would you, would you remind us this morning of the incredible gift it is that we get to call you father and that it took that for us to call you father. Would you prepare us now, even as we come to this table, that we would look back on Jesus's first appearing, that we would anticipate his future appearing and that we would live our lives for all the days in between as those who practice righteousness, anticipating the day that we will be like him. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.